have our responsive reading. If you would please stand as we read uh, from our Bibles. This morning we will look at Psalm 49, verses 1 through 10. You'll find that in the Pew Bible on page 579. And seeing as we're all the regulars, we know how this works. I will begin with the first verse. Psalm 49. Hear this, all peoples, give ear, all inhabitants of the world. My mouth will speak wisdom, and the meditation of my heart will be understanding. I will divide my ear to a proverb. I will express my riddle on the heart. Why should I fear in the days of adversity, when the iniquity of my foes surround me? No man can, can by any means redeem his brother or give, a God, give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly, and he should cease trying forever. That he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. He sees that the wise men die, the stupid and the senseless alike perish, and leave their wealth to others. Amen. Please be seated. As we uh, look at this particular psalm, it doesn't have the individual who wrote it or the exact timing and everything. But it is a psalm that does speak of the things of God. And one of the things that it clearly seems to state from the beginning, whether you're wealthy or whether you're poor, it's a level playing field. It doesn't matter. You can't buy your way into heaven nor uh, depend on your poverty in order to get you in. Everybody stands at the same uh, level at the foot of the cross, as we would say from the New Testament, those is a psalm. Everybody stands there. But here in this psalm, it does talk about how uh, God's wisdom and the meditations of his heart and the things that we ponder about God are essential. And it is essential in order to develop and to have our faith grow. For without faith, we have nothing. As the psalm continues, though, it steps right into the true gospel that we get throughout the whole Bible. No man can, by means, redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. We can't buy, barter, gain our way into heaven. Our brother can't do it for us. But we learn something about our Savior. He becomes our kinsman redeemer. He becomes our brother. And it is he who can fulfill this. It is by his blood, his life, that we are redeemed. He ransoms us. He buys us back into favor with God through the work that he has done in salvation. Verse 8, for the redemption of his soul is costly and he should cease trying forever. Because we can't gain it ourselves. We keep trying. We see out there in so many circles, so many different ways of looking at uh, faith and looking at the goal of eternal life and how individuals will work. They will work hard in order to gain the right perspective with God. They'll give up their wealth. They'll, 
they'll help in situations that they normally wouldn't go to, all in order to be in the right standing with God. But that's on our own works. That's on our own merits. And as the psalm says here, and he should cease trying forever because it is our brother Jesus Christ who has redeemed us and it is the only means by which we can gain that eternal life, that relationship with God. That he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. Well, we certainly know that Jesus' body did not undergo decay. He was brought out from the tomb on the third day that he did not decay. That all of us will. And when you hear about the, the actual physical effects of decay on the human body, it's not a good thing. It's not something I'm looking forward to. But I know positionally, being in the body of Christ, that this body doesn't matter. It decays. But being in the body of Christ, that is eternal. That is where we want to be. He has purchased us. He has ransomed us. He has brought us into right relationship with God. We are in his body. His body is glorified. Therefore, we are glorified. A question that was posed last night. How do we gain sanctification? Through the blood of Jesus. He has sanctified us. He set us aside. He has put us into that special place, into his care. And at at verse 10, for he sees that even wise men die. And I like this one. The stupid and the senseless alike perish. Boy, oh boy. We saw an example of how wise men thought how wise they were last night. And being able to use trickery and changing verses and using things out of context in order to elevate themselves. But at the end of the day, 50 years from now, well, maybe 100 for some of the younger folks, uh, we, we won't be here. We will have gone on. We will meet our end. But the wise things will remain. And those wise things come from this book. Not from what some guy said. Not from what somebody said 300 years ago. Not what somebody said a thousand years ago. Or 2,000 years ago. Because he had met an apostle who met an apostle somewhere down the line. And this is what he had to say about it. It is what God has spoken to us in our hearts through his word. And though this, we've only covered half this psalm. It does speak volumes. And I think clearly that in 7 and 8, we see the gospel. That it's not us who gains uh, eternal life through our knowledge or our stupidity or our wealth or our poverty. But it is through the blood of Christ. And that's where our focus needs to be. Amen. So I'm going to move us away from this. Probably is not going to be a shock. I'm going to move us away from Leviticus for a moment and kind of talk a little bit about some of the things from last night and sort of try to wrap my mind around some of the things that I believe that I believe were uh, falsely professed or were made rather confusing, as I had said from the outset of last night's debate, um, that they, things would be confusing as brought forth by Sam Frost. And I do believe that. I believe he intentionally confuses people, and I believe that's what was done. So this might be my morning at church, where I just needed to get my mind right, say some things that I believe should be said to glorify God, which 
Pastor Steve, again, I do thank you for that exhortation because we should all know that it's by the grace of God that we're here, not by our own works. It's by what Jesus has done and us looking to him, setting our eyes on his work and being able to understand that that's what leads us to not be condemned, nothing in and of ourselves. Um, It's great that we can become good people and that we can grow and that we can demonstrate the fruits of the Spirit, but may we never be a people that think that the fruits of the Spirit are what saves us, but rather they're what comes from the salvation that has been provided by the sovereign God. I want to read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, and then I'm going to read Ephesians 2, verses 21 through 22, which are two texts that I sort of spent a lot of time alluding to last night, but I don't know that I was actually, I actually read them, so I would like to put them before us this morning. Ephesians 1, 9 through 11, it says, He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he proposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who will work all things after the counsel of his will. So again, here what we should be seeing from this is that the goal of the ages that was being made clear at the fullness of time was that all things would be summed up in Jesus Christ. That's why we speak about the body of Christ. That's why we speak, that's why we celebrate the Lord's table is because it's celebrating that all things have been summed up in Christ and Christ is now present in his body where all things have been summed up. The next text I'd like to show you that further explains that is the next chapter, chapter two. I'll start at verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are, and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building, again, all things being summed up in Christ, this building in whom the whole building being, being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. So as I had made my point last night, the main point I was seeking to make was that the goal of the ages is not that you would get a new body and go to be with God in heaven, standing next to some physical God-man Jesus. Rather, as Ephesians points out, and many other texts, these are just the two I'm choosing to use this morning, the text makes it clear that the goal of the ages was that we would be brought into a glorified new body, the body of Christ, where all things are summed up in heaven and on earth. So my goal this morning is to share some of my thoughts on the debate. Um, Or you might say my post-debate thoughts. And uh, obviously, looking at some of the questions and things that were found online last night, um, there was some good feedback. There was a lot of bad feedback. Um, And and what I might say from the outset, some things that I already said in our Sunday school, was that um, two things I learned about myself last night was that Um, I might be a bit more gentle than I desire to be in debates, um, but I believe that to be a fruit of the Spirit. So I believe that God is leading me to become more and more gentle, as much as it frustrated me sitting there last night. Where is that former aggression? Um, I do thank God that I've moved away from that and that I'm moving into gentleness, which is a fruit of the Spirit. So that being the first thing. And then the second thing is that I'm young, I'm naive, and a lot of times I like to think everybody has my best interest at heart. Everybody. 
So when I hear, you know, oh, we're going to change the, the rules, we're going to change the moderator, we're going to change where we're posting the debate, I just say, hey, that's great. Go ahead, go for it, without realizing that there may be ulterior motives in changing the moderator of the debate, who is obviously biased, and also changing the location where the debate would be posted, where it would garner most attention from the other side, so to speak, and uh, fail to really think those things through. So those would be some of my things I learned about myself last night. One part of my presentation that I did not share that I would like to share with you all this morning is my critique. If you remember, when I had opened up the presentation, I said there was a threefold way I wanted to go about this. I wanted to make an affirmation, I wanted to offer up a critique, and I wanted to conclude. As I watched the clock wind down last night, I noticed I was not going to have all the time I needed to go through the critique part, so I kind of jumped past it and went into my conclusion. My critique was this. Acts chapter 17, verse 11. When the Bereans heard the Apostle Paul preach, they didn't go and listen to the traditions of some people around them. They didn't try to think of their own traditions. Obviously, they were from Berea, um, Thessalonica. They, they didn't do that. What it says, the text says they did, was they searched the scriptures to see if what the Apostle Paul said was true. What we need to think about, obviously we should all know this, that Acts, Acts wasn't even compiled in the book yet. The New Testament wasn't a part of, they didn't have this Bible where they could go and say, let me search the Bible. What they did have was the Law and the Prophets. The Law and the Prophets, that was the hope of Israel. The Apostle Paul says, I preach nothing other than what the Law and the Prophets speak. So, the case, the critique against what was presented last night, or anything that seems to come outside the bounds of Scripture and is based upon tradition, or church fathers, and what men closer to the time of Jesus may have said, uh, doesn't necessarily matter, because we need to be searching the Scriptures. As Pastor Steve pointed out, it doesn't matter if you lived 2,000 years ago in the time of Jesus, that doesn't make you any more correct than somebody searching the Scriptures today. Example, Judas. He lived with Jesus. He spent time with Jesus. Does that mean that he got it right and people 2,000 years later are more inclined to get it wrong than him? Or, as 1 Corinthians chapter 2 tells us, these things are spiritually discerned. doesn't matter how close to the time of Jesus that you live. It has to do with the Spirit making the truth known as we are searching the Scriptures as the noble Bereans did. 2 Timothy 2.15 tells us to study to show yourself approved, rightly dividing the word of truth does not say, as I had mentioned last night, and nobody has told me in my Christian walk, study to show yourself approved, rightly dividing the church fathers and creeds. No. So obviously we would say that we need to study the word of truth, which the word of truth, as per the context of Scripture, was the law and the prophets. That's where the answers must come from. And then, of course, the text I always bring up, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21, prove all things, hold fast to that which is good, and let go of that which is evil. I do not believe that that only lasted up until the time of the church fathers and then proving all things is done because all we have to do is read the church fathers. No. I believe proving all things is still a valuable thing that we must be doing as the Christian church today. Sam, in his attempt to bolster his position, is guilty of what they call the fallacy of misplaced concreteness. He tries to assert this uniform eschatology in the early church, which unfortunately, depends upon the ignorance of others regarding church history. I had made mention of quite a few quotes from different church fathers where one church father would agree that the coming of the Lord occurred in A.D. 70. 
and that that was the establishment of the new heavens and new earth. Not in its fullness, as they sought to mark out last night in the debate. It was sort of a setup. Um, none of the church fathers believed the new heavens and new earth was consummated in its fullness. Does that require some study and questions as to why didn't they? If Pastor Mike is saying that it is here in its fullness and the church fathers didn't, why? Why did they miss it? And of course, I would encourage you to go ahead and, do the, go ahead and watch that debate and see some of the details I had brought forth in that regard. In order to make it concise, what I had mentioned last night was that there's a website called Preterist Archive. If you were to go to the internet, you put in preteristarchive.com, and you could just think of the name of your favorite church father, Eusebius, Athanasius, whoever you might be reading, and you put that name into Google with Preterist Archive, it will pop up a list of quotes that would probably agree with the teachings of full preterism. Of course, this is picking and choosing quotes from different church fathers. However, what it does show us is that the church fathers are divergent and at many times contradictory with each other. It's fair to ask, how did the early church miss this? The full preterist is not alone in their critique that the early church seemed to lose their connection to the Jewishness of the gospel. I do want to say that one more time because I wish I would have said it more times last night. The full preterist is not alone in their critique that the early church seemed to lose their connection to the Jewish interpretation of the gospel. Many New Testament scholars have noted this even up to more recent times. For example, Richard Hayes, in his book, The Echoes of, Paul, Echoes of the Old Testament in the Writings of Paul, he says, and by the way, not a full preterist, quote, the Christian tradition early on lost its vital connection with its Jewish interpretive matrix in which Paul lived, moved, and consequently later, Christian interpreters missed some of Paul's most basic concerns. Another writer states, not a full preterist, when things were driven from national interests to private life, they lost their grip on larger affairs and old, the old clear outlook into contemporary affairs, and it gave way to an artificial scheme, more foundational on man's minds rather than the thoughts of the prophets. Again, not a full preterist. As compelling as it may seem to consider, well, these men, these church fathers, lived closer to the time of Jesus and the apostles. It's an illusion. As I mentioned, Judas and many other false teachers lived close to that time as well. These things are spiritually discerned by searching, studying, and proving. We must not cleave to any one man or men's thoughts, but rather give loyalty to the facts and hostility to illusions. And church history is not reliable. As the saying goes, history belongs to the victors. Due to the persecution, even within the church, by the church, the pressures that were put upon other teachers, for whatever reason it may be, and things that simply proceed from human nature, dishonesty, uh, the desire to maybe not mention something that would contradict another point. So again, the church fathers and a lot of the writings that we still have to this day need to be examined as not necessarily inspired. They can be searched, studied, and examined. And prayerfully, there's many good things you would see in those writings, but we should never say, this is where I find my truth. This is not where we must go to find clarity. Simply put, the scriptures do not teach that. In talking about Sam's exegesis last night, um, one of the problems with debating somebody like Sam Frost is that he's gone about redefining 
everything, but he puts it all under the heading of futurism. So everybody in the room that is a futurist thinks they agree with him. For example, if you were to read Sam's new book, The Son of Man, some long title, The Son of Man and the Coming of the Perusia, something or other, um, he goes about redefining what many New Testament scholars have pointed out. The time texts, again, we would say the time texts are very clear. They point to the destruction of the city of Jerusalem in the first century. Jesus was coming soon. He was at hand. It would happen while some of those standing in front of him would be alive. That generation. Sam goes on, and and many scholars, again, outside of full preterism, would agree with us on the time text and what those things point to. Sam has now gone about to redefine all of them and say that they're all talking about the ascension. The amount of work that that would require to dismantle that confusion is something that I will readily admit to you I was not prepared to do last night. What Sam does is he, he lacks connection of syllogisms. And I mentioned this last night where certain scriptures unite with other scriptures. And the reason why I didn't even bother going there is if you were to watch the first debate I did with Sam, as I brought up last night, that I do believe I already did the debate. It was already sufficient. When I had brought up a bunch of verses, and you probably noticed last night, he said, why didn't he bring up all the verses that he would normally bring up in many of the debates? Well, remember, I debated Sam Frost before. So what I learned there was that the first debate was that no matter how well I put together the narrative of Scripture, which ironically Sam started out with, I thought he was borrowing something, um, what he does is he'll immediately say, oh, that's just, you're putting together Scriptures that don't unite. And the amount of work it would require to begin to expound upon them would have been too much for last night. However, I do want to put some of them before you all this morning. In Matthew chapter 24, we read about the last days. If you were to read through Matthew chapters 24 through 25, you read about the signs of the last days that were given rather clearly to that first century generation. And then what ended up happening as they were waiting for this time to come was certain frustrations popped up in the Christian church as we read through the New Testament. We know by the time we get to the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 4, some had begun to preach that at this coming that is spoken about in Matthew chapter 24 through 25, those that were asleep would not take part in that coming. Again, Matthew 24 connects to 1 Thessalonians 4. Some within the church at Thessalonica, which were being persecuted and beaten, again, these people who lived in Thessalonica, they were turning away from their idols. They were turning to the one true God. They were experiencing, if you were to read through the book of Acts, they were experiencing persecution from their, their family members, their brothers and sisters. And then what the Apostle Paul is saying in 1 Thessalonians 4, well, before I say what the Apostle Paul is saying, it would seem that some false teachers had crept into that church at Thessalonica and began to tell these people, you know your ancestors that are dying and you know, dying for Jesus right now during this moment before the coming of the Lord? They're lost. If, they don't, if they're not alive, they don't persevere till the coming of the Lord. They don't get to be brought into this glorious reality. So what does the Apostle Paul say? No, when the Lord comes, those that are asleep will be brought first. They will come with Christ. And then the dead will be raised and all the other details you see there in First. Thessalonians chapter 4, that, that we would be consummated. Matter of fact, if, you, if we could just read that last couple of verses there of 1 Thessalonians 4. It says here, 
The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. So the goal here is to be with the Lord. Remember in John chapter 14, when Jesus was ready to leave, he told them, I go to prepare a place for you so that where I go, I will bring you to be with me. Is Jesus here? He's here. He's with us. He brought us to be with him. He summed all things up in Christ as Ephesians chapters 1 and 2 clearly mark out for us. And then, of course, as you get to Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is another correlating text to Matthew chapter 24 and 25 and 1 Thessalonians 4. You see there that there were some in the church that began to deny that the dead would be raised. Totally different group of people than the asleep. I appreciate Pastor Steve's passion to really try to corner uh, someone on the difference between the asleep and the dead. So when we rightly divide these things, we can see that Matthew 24 and 25 are speaking about this end time coming. And then 1 Thessalonians 4, a correlating text, is speaking about some of the confusion that would have happened in regards to that coming. And then also 1 1 Corinthians chapter 15, another correlating text about another aspect of confusion that would have taken place regarding that coming. We don't need Sam Frost's confusion. We can find it in Scripture where they had confusion, and then we can see where it was made clear by the Apostle Paul. Another interesting thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in talking about the resurrection of the dead ones, it, it illustrates the same point. So we shall be with the Lord. The Lord would be all in all. His kingdom would be provided and given and people would be able to flourish in that kingdom. That's what was expected. Not a lot of the assertions that were made last night. In talking about the new heavens and new earth, obviously what we must do is get a healthy handle of Genesis 1 through 3. And when we can understand that, which I'm imagining Sam Frost has a very divergent and confusing understanding of, um, we can then begin to understand this heaven and earth language, which we find in Isaiah chapter 65, Deuteronomy chapter 32, which was horribly abused last night, and um, also Matthew chapter 5 and Revelation chapter 21. You see, lock with each other is required, but unfortunately, when you're in certain debates, some people will just dismiss the entire syllogism, and then you have to start from the very beginning. In the Reformation Study Bible, just in case... Um, well, I'll say this. Uh, Sam will deny that all the comings, uh, the Matthew 13 coming, the Matthew 16 coming, the Matthew 25 coming, um, and the Matthew 24 coming, he'll say that they're not all connected, that there was a coming in AD 70, and that there's a coming that's going to happen later on in the future. I want to read you a quote from the Reformation Study Bible. Again, I don't imagine that those people that put together the Reformation Study Bible are preterists, but listen to what they say. The language of Matthew 24, 31 is parallel to passages like Matthew chapter 13, verse 41, which was what Sam continually alluded to last night as the parable of the wheat and the tares. Well, if Matthew 24 is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the signs leading up to it, what Matthew chapter 13 in talking about the wheat and the tares in the end of the age would be synonymous with that. Not looking at and obviously telling everybody, well, there's still wickedness here which I believe was very clear from a reading of Revelation chapter 22, that there's still wickedness in the new heavens and new earth. And we don't need to go to the confusing book of Revelation. We can go to Isaiah chapter 65. And if you were to read Isaiah 65 without the glasses of demanding what a new heaven and new earth will be, you'll see that even within Isaiah 65, there's death in the new heavens and new earth. 
So the Reformation Study Bible connects Matthew chapter 13, the wheat and the tares parable, with Matthew chapter 24, which is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. The Reformation Study Bible says also Matthew chapter 16, verse 27, where Jesus says, For I tell you the truth, some standing here will not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. They connect that to Matthew chapter 24 as well. And also Matthew chapter 25. All of these passages, and then they continue, as well as 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 52, and 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, 14 through 17. So I tell you all of that because it's important to know what scriptures are, what are mixing with other scriptures. When I had heard somebody give an analogy of syllogisms and talk about the power of syllogisms at a conference recently, I thought it was very well done. If you need a name, his name was Roy Runyon. He spoke at the... Um, was it um, Ardmore? No, no, Memphis, the Memphis Eschatology Seminar, and he did a great presentation on syllogisms. The next thing I want to make mention of is talking about the glorified body, because we're going to go ahead and celebrate the Lord's table here in a moment. And I had some notes that I had wanted to make mention of last night in regards to the glorified body, which, to be clear, I believe this is the glorified body, the body of Christ, all things being summed up in Jesus. And I want to share with you some thoughts that I had written down. That same man, Roy Runyon, that I just mentioned, he wrote an article recently called The Bodies of Jesus. And this is what he said. Since Jesus, in his pre-incarnate state, unarguably was not physical flesh, of not physical flesh and bone body, but was both in the form of and equal to the Father. You see this in Philippians 2.6. Then for Jesus to pray that the Father would restore him to his former glory that he had with him in John 17, 1 through 5, becomes devastating to the glorified physical body propaganda. The resurrection of Jesus' physical body was a sign which pointed to the spiritual body. And Paul makes it abundantly clear. Jesus only has one body. Ephesians 4, 5. And that's one more than nothing and one less than two. In Ephesians 2, 6... It says that the saints had been seated in heavenly places. A question I wish I would have asked Sam last night was did those saints that were seated in heavenly places see Jesus physically? Because if they were seated in heaven, where Sam had posited that's where Jesus sits in his physical body, then those, those saints at Ephesus who were seated in heavenly places should have been able to see Jesus physically. The problem with that, as I posited last night, is that the men that are claiming this understanding of the glorified body, that the glorified body is going to be this body without blood and all these different strange theories that come out of that, they go right, they run right against 1 John 3, 2, where the saints in that first century generation seem to say that they had touched Jesus, they had spent time with Jesus, they knew him physically. But when he ascended... They say, we do not know, we do not see, we do not know what he is. So again, for the futurists to proclaim that they know what the glorified body is, which is in complete contradiction to what John says, he does not know what it is. But then see how that also doesn't make much sense. If the church at Ephesus is in heavenly places, they should be able to see this physical body Jesus. Which, of course, we know was not the case. In John chapter 3, Jesus speaks to Nicodemus about how these things are spiritually discerned, how a man will see God if he's born again. 
And most of the details in Scripture seem to point out, actually, as I had mentioned earlier in our Sunday school, um, Jesus says that the kingdom of God will come without observation. Jesus is the one that's going to usher in. The coming of the Lord, when he comes, was the ushering in of that kingdom. If Jesus comes physically to bring the kingdom, then the kingdom does come with observation. Contradiction of Jesus' words, which I don't want to stand in. I'm okay with contradicting the church fathers and the creeds. I'm not okay with contradicting the words of the apostles and Jesus Christ. A couple of verses I'd like to read before I bring us to a close and we celebrate our Lord's table here. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. It's in here somewhere. Okay. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. You see, the Apostle Paul knew that he was suffering. The reason why they proclaimed his death until he would come was because they were suffering the afflictions, the persecutions that Jesus said would happen during those last days. He said that you will be persecuted. You go from city to city. You will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. So again, the body of Christ, the church, was celebrating his death because they knew that when they were persecuted, that was their being a part of his death, his, his suffering. And they were filling up what was lacking in his afflictions. Of this church, verse 25 says, Paul was made a minister of this body. If the church is the body, what he could rightly say there was of this body. And we're talking about the glorified body of Christ, the church. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 23, points us to the same reality. In Ephesians 1, verse 23, we read, we'll start at verse 22, and he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Prayerfully, you're seeing what the goal was. The fullness was his body, that all things would be summed up in Jesus Christ. And the last verse, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 12. And he gave some, talking about this body, and he gave some, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body up the body of Christ because this is where Christ is present manifests himself physical body of Jesus his church let's pray before we move into the a celebration of the Lord's table mighty God we do thank you Lord we thank you for all that you've put before the Lord, the jots and tittles that were necessary to be fulfilled so that we can live in a new heavens and a new earth. Lord, we thank you for the consummated reality that we currently live in. While we surely have frustration with the confusion in the church, we do hope that you would continue to allow each of us to search, study, and prove to the building up of your body. 
Lord, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for the reality of what you had to accomplish and all that you had to fulfill to provide atonement and propitiation so that we could truly celebrate your presence with us. Lord, as we move into the Lord's table this morning, further convince us of the goal of the ages, Lord. The goal of the ages, that all things would be summed up in you. That we can look to you and be healed. That we would set our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And that this body would make that known. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.